Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. Today's guest is George Vlad. So we were walking and all of a sudden I hear this huge reverberating sound where this guy was like beating his chest. But it sounded like, I don't know, like a, like a huge drum, beating on a huge drum. And the, the trees were, were echoing and I instantly froze. I, know, I didn't know, what, what is that? And then the, the gorilla, he started to roar and he made these crazy, very loud roars. And it sounded half human, half like very sci-fi monster or fantasy monster. And I, the only thing that I that I had on my mind is run. George Vlad is a sound recordist, photographer, and expedition leader with a keen interest in wildlife and conservation. Now. Let me ask you this, when you, are, when you guys are out hiking or climbing or paddling or doing what you do in the outdoors, how often are you actively listening to what's going on around you? George Vlad does just this and we discuss it in depth in the interview and just switching from a passive listening to the background to an active listening of the background. He travels to and explores wild and remote places trying to avoid man-made sounds to capture the purest soundscapes. In his mind, not only is it good for his work and the job that he does, but he can also transport people like you who are, you could be on a run, on the driver's seat in your living room listening to this. Uh, A couple of you said you listen to it in the shower. You could be there and you could be transported right from there to location. In this episode, we're going to be talking about encounters with wildlife, accidentally recording poachers and illegal mining, the importance of positivity on expeditions, and escaping burnout of a hundred hours a week to the Romanian mountains, and so, so much more. This one is a must-listen, and as you've probably noticed, there's not going to be any backing tracks. There's going to be an end track, and you just heard the introduction, but in the meantime, as we talk about glaciers, volcanoes, rainforests, you are going to be hearing the sound that he has captured from location, and I really, really hope you enjoy it, and it just completely takes you away and makes you really imagine visually through the power of sound. Anyway, let's get into the interview. I really, really hope you enjoy it. George, welcome to the interview. How are you doing today? I'm good, Chris. How's it going? Yeah, yeah, not too bad at all, actually. So I was wondering, first question, people are often inspired by the physical and the visual on expeditions. So things like crossing jungles and climbing mountains. What is an expedition like when your goal is for the audio and for capturing sound? I guess uh, this this question can be asked about life in general in uh, the Western world nowadays. Because we you know we're conditioned to look at things and to um, to look for visual cues and to navigate the world uh, by by sight and media throws things at us all the times and 
we're looking at things most than much more often than we're listening. So for me, it's been uh, you know ever since I I was aware of this. I mean, I've always inter- I've been interested in listening. And on an expedition, for me, it's just second nature at this point. When I go somewhere, and even it doesn't have to be new, but if it's new, it's even more uh, obvious that I listen for cues. And I like to listen for birds. I like to listen for wildlife. You know, I'm, I'm very fond of ecology and conservation and even like musical traditions and stuff that I'm not really used to. So to answer your question, I think it helps. You know, when, when you're in a jungle, when you're in a rainforest, Obviously, you can't really see much. There's a lot happening, but you, you mostly you can hear that. Your vision, your, your field of view is very narrow. It's, it's sh- short. You know, you can't really see far into the distance. But you can hear a lot of stuff, and so that will help you navigate. That will help you go towards something that you want or you know, avoid things that you maybe don't want to, uh, to encounter. So for me, I find this uh, it's a fascinating way of living and of immersing uh, myself into a landscape. It's quite an atypical adventure to have on the podcast. Um, so I was wondering, what kind of challenges do you come up when you're when you're planning these sort of trips? I think the biggest challenge for me is avoiding man-made sound. Obviously, this is um, it's also because I want to focus on recording pristine nature, and this goes to the purpose of my recording. So I, I record these sounds so that I can use them in video production and in working on film, on video games, and other media. And the way things, you know, the way audio is treated in a media production, everything has to be recorded separately and then it's all brought together. So if I have a recording of a, of a rainforest, for example, just a generic habitat recording or, or environment recording, that should ideally not include distant engines or people talking or aircraft flying over. Because if that's the case, you know, it, it can be added afterwards in post. Ideally, you know, it, it just gives me more options. It's more flexible to have these things recorded by themselves. So when I look at a place, for example, when I, when I research a location to, re, to go and record, I want to make sure that this is the case. I want to make sure that when I go there, I will not have to dodge you know, pirates on, uh, on motorboats and aircraft and people yelling and, and people partying so I can record my birds and wildlife and nature. And this has been historically a big issue in places where I did not expect that to be the case. When I went to Peru uh, two years ago, I took quite a, a remote part of, uh, of the rainforest in Peru, in um, the Las Piedras ri- River Basin. And, you know, on looking at the map, there's not really much development over there. You're like, tens of miles away from anything that could cause or could uh, encourage man-made sound. The problem there was that there's a lot of traffic on the river, and it's mostly at night when people can kind of be, you know, can, they, they can escape oversight from the the police and from other government agencies because they do a lot of illegal logging over there there's a lot of poaching happening there's illegal mining and these things you know they, they kind of have to avoid being being caught right so they will get on their boats at night when i like to record a lot because there's a lot happening at night so i i will leave out a sound recording rig in a place where you know you know using my own ears when i'm out in, during the day there's not much happening so i was i'll expect that to be the case through the night as well but as soon as uh, as dusk falls there's all this traffic that starts and it's you know most of my recordings from that part of the world there is always a distant generator or a distant boat engine or some distant aircraft flying over and it's a big issue you know it's a big issue in other places as well in senegal for example in the mangrove forests 
there was always traffic and that was actually just people going out fishing or you know or traveling between villages and you know you can't really blame people for wanting to travel so i have to go to a place where i'm really far away from any of this and it's not usually it's not as easy as you would expect even if you go to borneo or africa or south america jeez that's incredible that's almost like you're doing like inadvertent detective work for, for the local police in some cases that has happened actually so i was recording in borneo in a in a national reserve in a protected area and i recorded inadvertently uh, um, people shooting people poaching and i got in touch with the park authorities you know so i sent them the recording but obviously they really couldn't do much because obviously the people the poachers will not go to the same place all the time so it's just sound monitoring and, and acoustics like that they are sometimes used for trying to understand how these things happen like logging or poaching or other thing or other you know, results of civilization uh, it's a piece of a bigger picture isn't it yes exactly and it's, it's very easy to you know cameras they will focus on a, or on a field of view right let's say they, they might grab something if if poachers will, will pass right in front of the camera but something like shooting or um you know logging these can be captured by microphones from miles away even in a rainforest where it's really loud because of the 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 insect sounds or the soundscape so i think it has it's not being used as much as it could it it, there's huge potential to it and there there are some initiatives that want to arm conservationists with lots and lots of recording recording uh, devices that you can put on a sort of a grid and then you can get instant or almost instant uh, feed from these. So then you can kind of pinpoint on where things are happening and then you can send some rangers over there to check. But it's, it's still in its infancy. It's not something that I've seen uh, very developed. That'd be really clever to see, actually. I mean, I mean you've got um, just local to where I live, uh, about half an hour away, there's this uh, satellite dish and next to it, more powerful than that, are just these sticks coming out of the ground. And they measure where the radio waves are coming from by you know, by the split second difference on it hits one side of the sticks then lands like so it hits the other side. You know, that'd be that'd be really clever to see just a grid work of microphones set up to see where the noise is coming from and go after them. But you've got to make sure it doesn't impact the the wildlife, I guess. Well microphones don't really impact wildlife. I've I've had my equipment out in rainforests and in deserts and all kinds of places. And the worst that's happened, I think the baboons they came close and they sometimes they break my microphones or they bite into the recorder bags. But as soon as they find there's no food in there, they just leave it and, and there's nothing uh, more to it. Elephants have come close to my microphones. They inspected it. They just left them there. So uh, wow. it's not really that... Uh, I think it can be as unobtrusive as possible with wildlife and with nature. That's nuts. I mean, that recording of elephant coming up, that's that's enough. That that single recording is enough for people like me to go, wow, I've got this, and show up with the people the rest of my life. <laughs> well, fortunately, you know, because I'm not uh, exclusively interested in sound, I also had a camera trap, so I have that on on video as well. When the elephant approached, they're actually a small family of elephants, so they were looking. My microphone was just there, and it's it, this one that I'm I've been using is quite a big setup that records around, so it wasn't easy to camouflage it or to make it inconspicuous. But the the elephants were very civil, so they just came by. They they had a look. They were I think they were talking to one another. They said, oh, there's something unusual here. Better just leave it, you know, maybe it's uh, someone's uh, recording equipment. Who knows? Just... <laughs> I'll move with that George guy again. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. So uh, I, I'm very grateful for that because obviously yeah. it's quite expensive equipment that I have to leave mm-hmm. out like that. Uh, you've spoken before about uh, reframing situations, so it's interesting that you touch on 
sort of like the, the potential for things to go wrong there. When you're actually on expedition, just how important do you think it is to utilize positivity and clear thinking to sort of match your headspace with reality? It's obviously, it's very important. It's not always feasible or not always uh, easy to put into practice. But I can give you an example. So when I went to the Congo Basin rainforest a few years ago, we had a guide and a fixer who was sometimes very moody. Well, actually, he was generally very moody. Someday he would, he would be very excited about our project. You know, he would help identify locations where there would be a good soundscape or a balanced soundscape. And he would be, be he would be very excited to show us around uh, this national park that he was uh, he was working in. And other days he would just sleep all day. He would say, no, I don't feel like doing anything today. Just we're not going to do anything. And it was a bit unnerving, you know, to, we, we never knew how, you know, which of his personalities would be, you know, we would encounter one day or the, or the next. So we started to make jokes, you know, between us. We, we weren't making fun of him, but we were taking this lightly. You know, it was just whatever, you know, if he doesn't feel like taking us uh, into the rainforest somewhere, we're just going to go by ourselves. You know, what, what's the worst that can happen? We can just get trampled by an elephant or, or charged by a gorilla. You know, there's probably not worse than that. And this way we managed to, to get whatever we, we wanted to do done. In the end, we recorded most of the things that we, we were planning to do. And we eventually started to work with him and we convinced him towards the end of the trip, he was much more positive towards our focuses, you know, in terms of soundscape, even on the days when he was a bit uh, moody like that. So it's, it's important. I think it sets the mood for the whole trip. And as an expedition organizer and leader, it's even more important than for everyone else. Uh, for example, in the Amazon, I went there with a friend of mine and I think I have a bit of an edge on, on him because I've been exposed to more wilderness and, and hardship than him. And he sometimes, he, he felt a bit, uh, he felt like it was a bit too much for him. He was a bit unlucky as well. So he, he had, for this one occasion, he had set, he had put his uh, laundry out to dry and there's a specific spider that sheds tiny hairs. And these hairs, they just, they're like tiny hypodermic needles. So they just end up in your skin and they cause this rash. So he puts on his, this, his t-shirt in the morning and soon after, he started to be very itchy, and he just—he couldn't stop scratching himself. And you know, at first, I was—we I, were worried, but then our, our local guide said, you know, this sometimes happens. You just have to just take your your t-shirt off. But obviously, we were like four hours away from from base camp, and there were worse things that could bite you, and you know, you could get stung and, and bitten and stuff. So he had to pull through. And I just started to tell him a story about another friend of mine who. Whenever he, this friend hurts himself or, or you know, feels pain, he, instead of complaining, he says, no, I'm really enjoying this. This is so good. And I, I kind of turned this into a sort of a, a leitmotif for the whole trip. It was our motto, you know, look, I'm feeling very itchy now. This is so, I feel so immersed in this landscape now. It's like I, there's nothing between me and the, and the spiders and the wildlife. And just thinking about it in, the, in these terms was... I think changed the the whole uh, mood for that day and for the trip. Obviously, you don't want to to ignore issues and problems. And if you get bitten by a snake, like a, like a bushmaster or something, there's no way for just changing your your mindset to to avoid dying from it. You know, you still have to go to a hospital and to 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 think about envenomation and other other things like that. But I, you know, overall, you can get um, way better results by having a, diff- a, a positive mindset. Um. You've talked previously elsewhere about uh, experiencing burnout when you're working in Scotland. 
I think you gave some some dreadful figure of amount of hours you're working a week. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, the the interesting bit for me was that you went home and to Romania um, and explored for a month. Was that the moment that you chose to pair expeditions with sound capture? Do you think? I think that kicked off my my thirst for expeditions, not necessarily paired with sound capture. Back then, in 2013, I you know to give you a bit of background, I had I just moved to Edinburgh and my so I was working in in sound design for video games and this had been my like, dream career for for more than a decade at that point, and I was so happy that I could do this and someone would pay me for it that I just ignored anything else. I was just like, oh, this is my this is my passion. This is what I've been working towards all my life. I, I will not say no to someone to, who comes to me, ask me for, for something like that. And this was detrimental to my health, you know, to my mental well-being, and it was not sustainable. And, you know, other people who had been through this have, had told me previously, you know, just make sure you get time off, make sure you see people, make sure you go out. You just, you can't sustain a life of, uh, you know, a hundred hours a week, just work and not doing much else. And I got to a point where I couldn't sleep anymore. And that was the worst because I would wake up more tired than I than I went to bed and I just wasn't creative. And since a lot of my work relies on, uh, a lot of my work relies on creativity, I couldn't, you know, I t- tasks that would normally take me an hour would take me half a day or even more. So that's when I decided, well, you know, I risk losing all of this because I'm pushing myself too hard. So... I took a month off and I, I went back to Romania. I hired a car and went into the mountains and just didn't think about work at all. I, I was hiking, I was doing some photography, some sound recording, but I was mostly there to clear my head and to reconnect with nature, I guess, which sounds a bit cliche, but going, you know, part of my, part of why I like to do the expeditions is because it reminds me of uh, my childhood. When I grew up in Romania and I was out in the hills and the meadows all the time and exploring and enjoying myself with, with, with my friends, you know, being out in nature, being out with wildlife. And I kind of lost that between maybe when I was 10 to when I was 25 or 30. And reconnecting with that part of myself helped me, for one, become more creative again and kind of get rid of this, uh, this burnout, but also understand how important it was for me. And ever since that happened, I think that was like you know about seven eight years ago at this point. I have never went back to I've never gone back to working a hundred hours a week. I've never pushed myself so hard to to burn out. I've always I think ever since there ever since that moment I go out for a walk for at least an hour every day, ideally out in nature. And every week I go on a longer hike, and every few months I go on an expedition somewhere when obviously there's no lockdown. So it's just changed my life completely. You know, I can't even, you know, it wasn't even, I wasn't even aware of it as much. I just decided that I had to do something to avoid that. And I very slowly and organically grew into all the side of my work where I would go out, I'll be out in nature. And then slowly I would add sound recording and photography and video and organizing expeditions and, and introducing other people to, to this side of um, our work as sound designers and, and sound creators. So it was just a very organic way of growing towards a more healthy lifestyle, I guess. Yeah, you kind of answered one of the questions I was going to ask as well, uh, which is about what did you do differently when you got back? And so it was brilliant to hear that it just kind of all just flowed back into what what you like. You didn't have to do anything forceful or anything. 
I guess I was very privileged as well because obviously people who work in an office all day they can't really take an hour just for go for, to go for a walk or if they do they have to sacrifice their lunch time or something you know they have to do things like that me I since I have to work since I work from home and I've been doing this for de- for more than a decade at this point I can very easily organize my time around this and I can also take maybe 2 or 3 weeks off every 2 or 3 months because I work with with my clients that you know I'm I'm on a contract base on these projects so I can arrange my expeditions uh, around this so I can't say that everyone should do this because I'm aware it's not possible but as much as possible you know I feel like everyone could use more time out in nature and more time disconnected from devices and from the internet and from work and from emails and from everything else yeah absolutely yeah I, I, I call them sanity walks Absolutely, yes. Very good name. Um, so kicking sort of right back to the beginning, you described that you were allowed to be quite feral as a kid. Did you have quite an outdoorsy and adventurous upbringing? Yes, I was very, I would say feral is the perfect name for that. I grew up with my grandparents in the countryside and in the 80s and the 90s, it was very commonplace for children to not, be, to not have a lot of oversight. My grandparents were working all the time, so they didn't have enough time to be there with me and to you know, say, don't go through that, don't climb that tree, don't run towards that pack of wolves or whatever. <laughs> Obviously, this was not the case with the wolves, but I was very, I was allowed to do a lot of things that children would not be allowed these days. And I was allowed to explore like increasingly wider circles around the house that, that you know around our home basically so i would walk for a mile in one direction one day and i would see new places and new things and i was the of my group of friends i was the one who named these places so i would name now oh, this is the, the the toad zone where we find a lot of toads right and we go back there and examine them and see what happens in winter what happens in summer i was very you know thinking back i was very organized in the way i did my adventures even when i was six or seven or five and I would say it was feral because of that, you know, because I was allowed to do all these things that for me seemed like I was pushing, I was pushing my comfort zone all the time. I never, I was never happy with just doing the same thing over and over or just playing in our backyard because I felt this need and I still feel this need to, to go to places where few people have ever been or places that might surprise me in one way or another or to discover you know, species or wildlife or, or cultures. So. Yeah, Pharaoh is the perfect name for that, I would say. <laughs> Brilliant. And um, you've spoken in quite a lot of depth with, about Ethiopia and Namibia elsewhere, which are all fantastic. And, you know, I recommend everyone listening to this to go and listen to those podcasts. I'll, listen, I'll put them in the show notes if you want to hear more about the technicality behind the, the sound recording. But I was wondering if you wanted to chat a bit more about colder regions, specifically Iceland. How was that for you? Iceland was not really that cold when we went there. I went there in July last year. It's not quite the Amazon, though. <laughs> no, no, I would, I would say it isn't. Um, the, the coldest I experienced there, I think, was when I was recording the, the Glacier Lagoon. That was, I mean, it was chilly, but I think 
the the soundscape and the landscape and the visuals of that being on the edge of a of a lagoon of a of a river i would say where there were so many bits of of glacier floating by and continuously colliding with each other and making these grating sounds it all i was i felt like i was surrounded by ice and by by this glacial atmosphere it was really beautiful and and primal as well at the same time and driving from that place to to a volcanic landscape that reminded me of ethiopia and of the complete opposite where it might be 50 degrees celsius and zero humidity it was it was a bit um daunting at first i i I didn't know what to expect in terms of you know how difficult it would be to navigate or to find uh what i was looking for like the, the the place where i wanted to record in and i didn't know if i would be self um i would I'll, I'll be able to sustain myself but obviously iceland is much more tame even if it's still pretty wild the the tourism infrastructure is very well developed and you're not far away from a road anytime unless you want to go into the center into the highlands but we stuck to the to the ring road around it so that was quite feasible it was a good introduction i feel like i've only scratched the surface so i have to go back and explore it hopefully in winter as well sometime when once this becomes possible again but that encounter with glaciers and with icy waters that was brilliant for me i just it was a different thing to what i had exp- experienced before it was only familiar as well because growing up in romania the winters there can be dire they can be wild sometimes we had minus 35 degrees celsius and you know that you could just couldn't do anything you had to be self-sustaining sometimes the the gas would fr- would freeze in the the natural gas would freeze in the pipes so you had to make do it to to heat your home with firewood so the the hard you know the hard part the difficult part there seemed a bit familiar as well so i think I, i'd be able to survive in winter in iceland if i plan the trip accordingly and i, I do a good risk assessment but yeah uh, now i plan a trip to norway to a glacier to record it in summer and i hope things will, will change by july so i can travel again because that seems very good as well there's a, there's a few really cool places that i want to record and a few interesting phenomena like um moulins in in the icebergs where you see these uh like the water goes in an, like a like a course crew and just water makes a makes channels through the ice and then you can walk in there and you can listen to it and you know there's all the dripping happening all the reflections and it's just beautiful and it hasn't been documented at least in terms of uh, soundscape too much too extensively so i i want to do this in summer that kind of leads to some of the bigger colder regions that you've got planned as well have you got similar goals for Greenland and Antarctica for, for whenever you manage to go? I do indeed, yes. I think I mentioned uh, something on my website about it and I get questions about it. I'm you know, Luckily, I decided to work on my YouTube channel and to upload soundscapes on there starting about two years ago. And that's gained some amount of traction. And I get a lot of emails these days asking me about the expeditions I organize. And there's people who want to join me either to experience these places or to to do the sound recording part or to do both i also have photographers who want to get in touch with me and they want to do the the photography side of things so i had been planning a trip to antarctica before lockdown and it was a bit costly you know i I think i worked it out to about one hundred and twenty thousand pounds for a month either in antarctica or, or south georgia but this means that i would have to charter a yacht and to 
to all, to hire the crew and to have every, everything prepared. And then I would have to share these expenses between everyone who wants to go on this trip. And I think there's a there's a top limit of five or six people who can join me. So it's not, you know, you can't really have 30 people or 50 because obviously it becomes unmanageable. But you also, you don't, you can't fit on a small yacht like that. And I had found three or four people who are interested, but you had to book it about a year in advance and you had to pay half of it up front. And I think it was a good thing that we didn't because obviously COVID happened afterwards and I'm not sure what would have happened. Uh, but it's still in my mind, it's still there. I still want to do it. I'm not sure how I'll be able to do it. I'm, I might just ask for a, for a grant from some organization or I might just have, have to save for it for a while. But it's something, it's one of my dreams to do that, to go and record the incredible wildlife and ice and to kayak with whales and to, to do all kinds of things that you might not be able to do 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Mm. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a really interesting point you bring up, actually, just the fact that these things may not be um, around for too much longer, which is quite sad, but fantastic that it drives you towards Antarctica. I mean, I, I, I desperately want to go, but I mean, like you said, that six-figure sum to, to visit makes for um, some saving to start now. <laughs> well, there are easier ways to do it. So I had an option to join the photography trip there, I think that was about seven or eight people plus the crew. And there was not a, as much freedom to land as I wanted for my sound recording purposes. Because obviously photography, you can't really do much at night. And then you, you can do, with the long lens, you can shoot photos from a ship or from a vessel. And even if you do land, you know, if you spend a few hours there, you, you take the photos you want and you can go back. Whereas sound recording, I want my way of doing sound recording, you know, to, to give a, few, a little background, I like to record for at least a day in one specific place to get a full day and night cycle. And then I can see the changes that happen over time. Ideally, when I'm not there, because when, when humans are in, in a certain place, they will inadvertently influence the soundscape and the wildlife and whatever is happening. So this was not ideal for my purposes. This is part of the reason I decided not to go on that trip. But it's still feasible, you know, and I, if that's my only choice, if, if only joining a photography trip there is my only option, I will still do it eventually. But uh, and that I think that costs around 15,000 pounds per person for about a month, which I guess, you know, when compared to more than 100,000, it's it's more palatable. It's not the, the cheapest when you, some people choose to buy cars and, uh, you know, to have a deposit for, for buying a flat or a house. I'd like to explain to, to invest in travel and exploration and equipment so yeah you know whatever yeah well i mean um like like one of our previous guests said you know no one's on their deathbed wishing they had more money so however you want to spend that money while while you're on the planet is is completely up to you as long as you're a good person right so absolutely well said yeah so you've said elsewhere um and and you know earlier as well we're mainly a visual culture culture and specifically that sound can be overlooked the recordings that you provide, you know, listening to listening to some of them, they they are captivating, and they, they ironically provide you with an image of what the sound <laughs> sound could be uh, through listening to them. But for you, are, are there any sounds you've recorded that strike memories within you? Well, that's a very easy question to ask. Everything strikes memories in in me in terms of sound. I can go back to my early childhood when I would hear. Uh, blue tits around the the home, you know, around where I grew up. And whenever I hear them, you know, I, I can turn it off. But whenever I hear them, I can go back to these memories just because they're they're so they're stuck in my mind. 
And whenever I go to a new environment, for example, when I went to the Amazon, there were sounds there like the oropendula or the, um, the toucans or toucanets that just stuck to my mind. And I, whenever I hear them, I'm instantly transported back to that. Or the, the motmots. I was sleeping on a platform, on an open platform in the rainforest. And the only thing that was between me and the environment was that a very thin uh, mosquito net. But the, the good thing about that was that I could hear everything you know, as I was sleeping. And as you know, when, when you sleep, you can close your eyes, but you can't really close your ears. So sounds will weave into your dreams. And you'll, there's this weird moment before you wake up where you can sense sounds and you can remember that you heard that. And that was me. That for me was the sound of the motmots. The motmots they sound uh, pretty low frequency. They go like whoop 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 whoop, and they're quite loud and they're quite big and chunky birds. And that to me was like I couldn't be. You know, I was I was be. It was happiness, pure bliss, just waking up at four a.m. listening to birds nearby and to insects and to the to the dawn chorus. And I eventually ended up uh, tattooing a motmot on my forearm just because I. This is my soul bird now. It's uh, it's stuck into my my mind and my memory like that. So yeah, whatever you know, even very common birds like like crows or ravens, you know, that still brings some memories when I've heard them. And music has the same effect on me. You know, certain natural sounds like branches breaking from trees in the rainforest, that as well brings back memories. So I might be a bit uh, odd like that, but yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's the short answer to your question, I guess. And then um. And then more specifically as well, are, are there any recordings as well that you listen to and you remember like so, something about that moment that you were recording as well? Like, you know, uh, someone tripping over right as you hit record or, you know, is, is there something that perhaps the listener wouldn't hear because it specifically happened for you when when you captured it? It's a, it's a very good question for uh, people who work in sound or who are familiar with, with the, the intricacies of sound. Yeah, the, the psychoacoustics of it is very interesting. When I went to give you an example, when I went to Ethiopia to record an active volcano, it was it was a grueling trip together. Actually, it was very hard. It was very hot. It was about fifty degrees Celsius. It was windy all the time. There was uh, there were salt flats all over, so we got salt into our eyes and all. It was it was it was a bit of work to get there, let's say. And once we got there, it was a bit of anticlimax because the sound as heard from maybe, you know, 100 meters away from the the edge of the volcano. It was, it sounded basically like, like white noise. It was just So I was a bit underwhelmed at first. And then, and obviously you can't really poke your head above the edge of the volcano because you risk falling in, in there. So I had to put a long microphone on a, on a boom pole and to take it, to put it above the edge. And when I listened to that, I was instantly I couldn't stop listening to it. so fascinating there's so much detail to it but obviously all of this got lost as the sound was pushed upwards and it bounced around from the edges of the, of the volcano and I listened to that for about half an hour until I, I thought I could hear people screaming in there and obviously this is the effect that will that a sound without much 
that you can relate to has on the human mind. You know, I was reading a book about though this was happening uh, during World War II when um, people were trying to decipher the transmissions from the Germans, right? And they would listen to static for days on end. And eventually they, were, they would think that they heard actually people talking, but there's nothing there. It's just the effect that listening to this, uh, this sound over so long a period will have on your brain. Be you know, your brain tries, tries to um, find patterns and to find meaning even in the most random of things. Uh, and probably this was some, something like that on a smaller scale. But the most interesting aspect was once I was, I, I think I'd had enough because I was getting a bit dizzy at this point. I took my headphones off and I asked my, our guide who was there with us to, to have a lesson if he wanted to. And he put his headphones on and he started crying because he had never heard the sound of the volcano without, you know, without anything being between the actual sound and his ears. You know, he had always heard it as you can hear it with the big bits of, of lava that you can get between you and, and everything was so washed out and, and you just you can hear it it's like distant waves but when i put when when he had this the headphones on and he could hear to the unmitigated sound of the volcano it was completely different for me and unexpected for him so he was uh so moved that he started crying and everyone else all our, our guides and our uh, security detail they just you know they made a small a short file and they they wanted to you know they queued up to listen to these to these sounds and i was so happy that i could offer this to them I, th I think you said as well that they, um, you know, they must have done what, like a hundred tours to this this volcano. More. That's right. That was not the first time they were there, and you know, all for them it was nothing new at this point. They were just like, oh, whatever, you know, this is another volcano. But once they was able, they were able to listen to it. It definitely changed their minds. Yeah, it was absolutely new. So I noticed that you've got as well recordings of the River Danube from uh, from home country Romania. But with having done so many expeditions, maybe not this last year, but with having done so many expeditions, do you feel that you're quite more nomadic or do you have some place that you specifically think is home? Uh, that's a very interesting thing to think about because it's been on my mind ever since lockdown, I would say, because up until last year, I was always thinking about myself as a bit of a nomad, as you said. And after that happened, I realized that the side effect of being a nomad is having no place where you feel like you belong and it's um, you know after so many years of doing it it feels like it's it's natural you know I'm just I would just bounce around from place to place I've lived in in a few countries in Europe and I've been to many places where I felt like I was very welcome but I never thought about any place like home ever since I lived uh, back in Romania I think at the moment home is England for me and uh, it doesn't it's, it's not going to change anytime soon even if I still keep going on expeditions like that, I do need a base camp. I do need somewhere to, you know, to have all my books and all my equipment and to, and my cats and everything. So yeah, this uh, home is is in Surrey at the moment, and I don't think it'll change anytime soon. I, I really like it in here. I I like the feeling of belonging and uh, having friends locally and just popping up and seeing someone. And you know, when you move around for, from place to place all the time that you can't really take that with you. I, I loved your anecdote, um, like we just talked about, of showing the, the guides in Ethiopia the sound of the volcano. And we've kind of touched on it a bit earlier as well. Uh, has learning through audio shifted your perspective on life at all? I guess it has. I don't think, for me, listening came before I, I even learned things or I studied. So it's always been there. I've always been fascinated with sound. And I was lucky enough to experience some some soundscapes that other people might not have had access to, like 
a soundscape where you don't really get a lot of man-made sound. Growing up, there weren't a lot of vehicles or aircraft in Romania, so I could go out into the woods, I could walk maybe for, for half an hour, for an hour, and I'd be somewhere where I couldn't hear distant traffic, aircraft, people, you know, industry. So that t- made me appreciate it even more. And there's been a lot of studies into this where hearing man-made sound or living next to a busy road, for example, or an airport, significantly will will make your quality of life lower just because, you know, this is not natural. This is not how hum- the human brain has developed. Hearing a, a constant sound in your in your in uh, the back of your mind there, it's like having a, a constant source of stress. And again, it might sound cliche, it might sound like something that's new agey or, you know, whatever. But to me, there's clear difference between spending a whole month in the studio working on things and going out and, and listening to traffic and to people and to all this chaos. And on the other hand, you know, being in a rainforest for even a week, for example, without network coverage, without traffic, without people, you know, just being there on your own and with wildlife, with, with nature. I'd, it, it's almost impossible to measure how much more energized and creative I feel after a, even a short stint in a rainforest, for example, or in a desert, even in places where initially you'd think, oh, there's not much to it, there's just wind. But after you've been there for a day or two, you start hearing all this this, this crazy amount of detail. The wind sounds different from, from a minute to the next. There's wildlife even in the desert. There are birds, there are insects that make sounds. It's not as uh, in your face as in a rainforest, but it's, it's still there. You just have to you know, to allow yourself to get used to that, to, to the much lower dynamic range and much lower intensity, and you'll hear it. I'm not sure if that answers your question. I think as I was learning about sound, I realized that I was doing so certain things without being aware of, of it, like taking breaks from listening to traffic or, or, you know, being aware of things as they happen, being a bit more analytical about sounds in certain places, things that people don't really do that do as much. When I go somewhere with a with, with a friend and I point out birds, for example, they'll be like, oh, is there a bird singing? Oh, yeah, there's a bird singing. To me, that's I'm always aware of that. I'm not just hearing things. I'm also listening to to, to what's happening around me. So, yeah, learning about it with this focus has definitely changed my life. It has ultimately had uh, an impact on me. But I think I was always into this, you know, and I was just, as I was learning more about it, I just understood how my thought processes worked and how I I can listen and I can identify things like that. Perfect. So no shift in perspective, just just using it to enhance your life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not a big thing. I think f- for a while I was very much, I think I was very strict about focusing on sound and ignoring other things. So I could kind of make up for the, the fact that I was always bombarded with visual uh, media and visual elements. But I think I've gotten to a point where I'm, I try to use these to, to tell a story, you know, because I also do some conservation work. And when I get to, to telling a story, I can use sound, I can use photos, videos, you know, talking words, whatever. So all of this stuff comes together to, to serve a higher purpose. It's, I think it's wrong to focus on one of these elements to the detriment of the others, even if perception is like, you know, maybe we should make up for the fact that we're bombarded with, with visual, so just do sound. I know plenty of people who try to focus on just this, the sound aspect, but I think you're missing out some, you're missing out on something when you just, when you exclude everything else and just focus on the one thing. I mean, it's, it's a similar 
I guess related for the question I asked is there's always that quote that says don't be so focused on what's in front of you that you miss the miss the glimmer in the corner of your eye so yeah I've had a collection of guests on the show that give different inspiration sources for expeditions uh, and we kind of hinted at it a bit earlier but for you what inspires and creates each trip I think this has changed over the over the years for me the first time I went on an expedition it was just to escape my studio, for example, you know, as, I, as I've mentioned already, I was getting to a point where I wasn't creative anymore. I wanted to be out and to get some inspiration, get some peace of mind, get to just clear my head, basically. And once I'd done that and I, I came back, I felt like there was not enough anymore. I wanted to do more. So I started to do sound recording and photography. And again, after a few years, that changed because I was noticing all this beauty and all this... Um, you know, all these natural places that were very fragile at the same time. So rainforest, for example, this is why I've been focusing on rainforest for a while. A lot of them, most of them, they're, they're in danger of not being there 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, because there's so much happening to them and people take them for granted. And when you think about the Amazon rainforest, it's such a, it's a huge place, it's a massive swath of, of, of rainforest that people never cons- consider that we might lose it. It's not about just l- cutting it all down, you know, there's a tipping point after which it just you know, it creates all these chain reactions where it's not sustainable anymore. So for me, getting to these places and gathering stories and understanding what's happening there and then sharing all of this stuff with other people who might not have the privilege of going there or might not even want to. This is, I think, at the moment, what drives me to to go to these places. Conservation and ecology are what I I eventually want to to move towards, you know, to mix it with my, my sound design work. I also want to make a difference. I, I feel like I'm at a stage in my life where I've focused on my own job and, and well-being for a while. I think it's time that I gave back and you know offered something, did something for, for the planet, for people. So yeah, this is what inspires me at the moment. I Whenever I go, wherever I go, there's always this angle of conservation and not necessarily just about nature, even about uh, you know, cultures and people and languages. This also requires, you know, effort to conserve because it's very easy for people in certain places to just uh, start speaking English or French because they get they are understood more or better like that or they can get better paying jobs and in the process losing their own identity their own languages their own culture and I think that's worth uh, preserving as well on top of preserving nature and habitats and wildlife mm, that's fantastic so I've got one last question before we go into some wrap-up ones just to finish up with you have had um, definitely one of the one of the most fascinating careers. I was uh, I was, was going to say the you know every each person that comes in this podcast has had such an, an adventurous background and it's uh, it's impressive. Your one is so fascinating too. In your whole career so far, what is one moment that you would love to relive? 
I think being charged by a gorilla <laughs> in the in the in Gabon in the Congo Basin rainforest. So that was well, this was 2018. We we, we were walking through the rainforest because there was this place that we could only reach by walking for about half a day to get to it. We were just walking and we were a bit tired. We weren't really focusing on much. I was just, I was listening as usual, and we had been uh, instructed before we went on this long hike that male gorillas, silverbacks, will charge at humans, at male, uh, at, at men, because they, so our pheromones are very similar to the ones that gorillas have, because we're 98% the same uh, DNA, right? And gorillas will see humans and they think, well, these are other males trying to, to come in on my territory and to, to steal my females. So they will eventually mock charge, which is basically making a lot of chaos and, and yelling and roaring and breaking vegetation so that they just make a big show of it to, to scare off uh, competing males. And 90% of the times, this is just a mock charge, and they will not follow through with, with attacking or being aggressive. But it's still an unnerving, an unnerving experience. And the way that the rangers uh, told us to behave was that, you know, you have to be, to make yourself look smaller, you know, just look down, not appear aggressive or, or menacing. Don't look them in the eye. Don't bare your teeth, because that's a sign of aggression. And don't run. This is the most important one because as soon as you run, a lot of animals have this instinct of chasing running things. This is just how they're they're brought up and they're how, how they've evolved. So whatever you do, don't run because you risk being mauled to death by, by these gorillas. So we were walking and all of a sudden I hear this huge rever reverberating sound. Where this guy was like beating his chest. But it sounded like, I don't know, like a, like a huge drum, beating on a huge drum. And the the trees were were echoing, and I instantly froze. I can I don't know what what is that. And then the the gorillas he started to roar, and he made these crazy, very loud roars, and it sounded half human, half like very sci-fi monster or fantasy monster. And I the only thing that I that I had on my mind is run. I couldn't think about anything else. I knew everything, you know, like mentally I could think that yeah, this is what I was taught to to do. But my my impulse was to run or to climb a tree. But obviously, you know, when you, you look at trees in the rainforest, they're not the easiest trees to climb. So then the ranger that was closer to me, he grabbed me by the arm. He said, no, don't run. Just look down and uh, it'll be fine. And okay, I, I, that's when I, I kind of um, uh, became a bit more aware of what was happening. And it, I managed to resist the impulse. And I, I took my phone from my pocket and I started filming it. And, you know, this, this gorilla, he was making a lot of racket he was like crashing through the vegetation and then he stopped a few meters in front of us you know behind some bushes and then he turned around and left and that to me was probably the, the most uh alive i've felt in my whole life i felt there, there's nothing between me i was i was not thinking about emails or or, or jobs or you know or paying the bills or or things that are on my on my mind you know regularly when i'm here uh in the uk that was me and wildlife and nature. I was, my immediate reality was that and nothing else mattered then. So that's, you know, I'm hoping I can relive this safely, obviously, because uh, I plan to go back to the Congo Basin Rainforest. I somewhat relived it in Borneo when I was chased by an orangutan, but that was a bit more tame. You know, she wasn't, she just wanted bananas, basically. She wasn't yelling at us. So, um, yeah, that was a moment that was, will, will stand out uh, for the rest of my life, for sure. Wow. That's incredible. Interesting as well that you go you go back to just feeling feeling alive. 
that seems to be a common theme with the with the moments to relive. So yeah, absolutely. It's it. We are so pampered in uh, in the Western world, and we are. I think it's a good thing that we're sheltered from these moments. But every every once in a while, we do need to feel alive like that, and to feel like you know things aren't hundred percent sure, and sometimes things uh, may be out of out of your control. You can't really control everything in your life. So you've talked about how through going out into wilderness and doing your sanity walks, you've picked up on different types of birds and different breeds and being able to identify them. If you could do the same thing with anything else, what would it be? Anything else? Mm, well, I'm, I'm actually trying to learn about um, plants and trees at the moment. I'm, you know, I've kind of ignored inanimate objects, you know, or actually, you know, they're kind of animate as well, but I've only focused on wildlife and kind of ignore trees and plants and they're fascinating as well and i have friends who can you know we can walk for 10 minutes and they can they can stop 10 times and see 10 different things that i i've overlooked because i I was focusing on the birds and it's mostly mosses and lichens and uh you know discarded bits of food that some wildlife have have eaten and you can tell by the the shape or the you know how they are how they look so that's to me taking it to to another level where being more aware of everything not just things that move fast and make sounds like that and then lastly where can we keep up to date with your adventures well you can find me on my website mindful-audio.com i'm also on youtube george vlad and i'm on facebook and twitter and others but i don't really i've kind of grown out of uh, social media I, I, it's it's okay you know i get messages on there i get comments i sometimes engage but I'm a bit. Uh, sometimes I just take a, a week off from social media. I just don't think about it. So, you know, email is the easiest one. There's a, a contact section on my website. If if anyone wants to get in touch, it's, uh, you're very welcome. Perfect. Well, George, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. hope you enjoyed that incredibly fascinating episode if you did then be sure to go and check out george vlad on all of the links that i will put in the show notes and if you enjoyed this episode then why not check out exploring cultures and wild places with ian finch or the episode with will copestick where we talk about the scottish highlands patagonia and more or even pursuing happiness mountains and adventure with emily scott that if you check out the full blog those links will be down at the bottom let me know what you think of this. If you have time, please, by all means, leave a, leave a five-star review on iTunes to help us move up the rankings and get more people knowing about the podcast. And if you feel up for it, share it with a friend too. But otherwise, I will see you in the next episode, and I hope that you have a fantastic day. Fantastic day.